Hey folks, uh, we are wise when we continue to rely on God's faithfulness in the best of times and in difficult times, and uh, these months right now are certainly kind of edgier times. So in our Sunday worship services, uh, for these summer months, we're going to enter into a new worship series, a new sermon series that we're calling Life on Edge, on the Edge, and this kind of has a double meaning because things are for sure both on the edge at present in terms of feeling a little, whew, uh, maybe unstable. And by God's grace, uh, we are also on the edge of something new. So in these summer months, we are going to walk alongside the Israelites to the edge of the promised land. And part of promised land living is God dwelling in the midst of his people. So we're going to trace this concept today of how God dwells among his people, where his power and presence are felt, and where God's glory gets revealed. So we spent several weeks in May kind of hanging out with the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai, where God and his people were joined together in an ancient marriage ceremony. The Ten Commandments really were part of like sealing the deal between the promises between God and his people. God promising to be a faithful God, and Israel promising to be his people. So one thing that many young couples do uh, at the time that they make these covenant vows or marital promises is start thinking about uh, where they're going to live and maybe their first home or apartment for sure. For Sarah and I, when we moved into our first apartment about 28 years ago, we put in a little you know, uh, work. This was in the days where most things were wallpapered still. So we took down a bunch of wallpaper, put up some fresh paint, and I think... Uh, I think we had affection enough for wallpaper that we actually wallpapered a couple of little bits or re-wallpapered a couple of little bits in our first uh, tiny little galley kitchen in our first apartment. And it is no different between God and his bride. In the book of Exodus, there are 15 chapters that describe in incredible detail the first kind of dwelling place that was to be shared with the presence of God in the presence of his people. Exodus 25 through 40 uh, describes this in the first place. God takes the initiative and says this, have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. You must build this tabernacle, keyword, and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern that I will show you. And the Bible then intricately describes the tabernacle's construction and its appearance It is essentially a tabernacle, a really large tent. Now, it would strike most of us modern folks, I think this original tabernacle, as exceedingly uh, humble in appearance and in in form. Literally, the first tabernacle could have fit many times over in the sanctuary right here and in our building. And this was the place that God was to dwell. The tabernacle was movable, pitchable, and portable. You may be asking yourself, God lived in a tent? Yes, (laughs) this was God's desire to live amongst his people who were living in tents, in a tent or a tabernacle himself. The most important feature of the tabernacle, however, was that it was to be directly in the center of God's people, in the center of their camp. This was right where God desired to be in the life in the mind, in the heart of his people, right smack dab in the center. When the 12 tribes of Israel would encamp, it would look something like this. 
The tabernacle was always at the center. On each of the four sides, there would be three of the 12 tribes of Israel pitching their tent. God was very concerned that his people keep their vision and hearts focused on what matters most, that he, the holy God who rescued them, was to be right there in the middle. Now, the holiness of God was the main thing that the tabernacle pointed to. The world outside of the camp, it was, it was the wilderness. It was unholy. On the inside of the camp, holiness. And then as we get closer and closer to the tabernacle, there was an outer court. At first, where prayers were made and sacrifices were made. And then there was an inner portion of the tent itself where the priests would go to offer incense and prayers. And then a holy of holies where only the high priest could go once a year to make atonement on the day of atonement for the sins of all the people. And in the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant the literal symbol on earth of God's glory, of his presence, and where his power rested. And the closer you got to the Holy of Holies, the more the colors would change, the more blue and purple and scarlet and gold-infused yarn there was as you got closer to the presence of God. These, I think it's safe to say from the Old Testament, are God's favorite colors. What this reminds me of, the the blue and the gold and the scarlet and the crimson all woven together is like if you've ever seen a picture of the Horsehead Nebula or the cosmos or the color of an amazing sunrise or sunset. It's like God chose these colors because it was the meeting place of heaven and earth, where heaven and earth, where God and his people embrace and kiss and enjoy one another's uh, presence. So this tabernacle, this tent, was part of the life of God's people for 400 years, from the wilderness to the promised land, through the days of the judges and Joshua and Ruth, into the early days of the kings of Israel. For 400 years, God uh, tabernacled amongst his people. And then, Pastor Jeff. And then King David comes along, and 1 Chronicles 17.1 gives us this, this little update, what's going in David's mind as he's sitting and thinking one day. So read this with me. After David was settled in his palace, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is under a tent. Nathan says to David, Hey, David, God's with you. Do whatever comes to your mind. But then during the night, Nathan gets a vision and God tells Nathan, look, David's not going to build this temple for me, this house for me. Solomon, his son, is going to build the house for me. And that indeed does happen. Now, whenever I read this story, i got to tell you, after the 400 and some years of God living in the center of his people, it kind of makes me wonder, like, why did God let these people build a temple? Seriously, a building, a permanent structure where he would live. Even Solomon, in his dedication prayer of the temple, in 2 Chronicles 6, says this. But will God really dwell on earth with men? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built. Solomon says the obvious. God can't live in a house in a building. He's much bigger than a building, right? So why does he let him build this temple? Well, the writer of the book of Hebrews, I think, may give us a little bit of a clue. He, he says this. They serve, he's talking about the priests, at a sanctuary, a temple that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. So I think God is putting this permanent structure up because he wants his people to learn how to worship him, how to relate to him, how to be intimate with him. 
He's giving them a pattern for how to approach him as he's in the center of their community, the center of their lives, right? How do we approach this God? And he shows them by putting this temple together, this permanent structure, that he's going to permanently be there with them. He wants them to approach him in a certain way. Now, if you know anything about where the temple is built, it's built in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, which is the same mountain where Abraham and Isaac had this little encounter where Abraham was told to sacrifice Isaac and the angel stopped him. That's the same mountain where this temple is put up. It is literally Jerusalem, a high city. In order to get there from almost any place in Israel, you have to ascend to Jerusalem. So the people of Israel, in their minds, had to ascend to get to God, right? They had to go up. And while they ascended, they would often sing the Psalms, Psalms 120 to 134, the Psalms of Ascent. And they would praise God as they ascended to Jerusalem to approach God at his temple. And once they arrived there, this praise would continue. And if you look with me at the temple design, this is the inside of the temple from the top. So put this picture up. You can see there's several different um, pieces to this. And Pastor Greg already referred to this a little bit. Where it says the court of the women, that's the outer court where only the women could go. The men could enter into the court where the sacrifices were offered. So as you approach God and ascended up these stairs, first you would praise him with these psalms of ascent. Then you would offer sacrifices for your brokenness and sin. Then the priest would enter the first room, which had the table of showbread, which reminded Israel of his provision, God's provision of manna in the wilderness. And the giant 75 pounds of pure gold menorah light it reminded the people of God's guidance and light through the wilderness. And then you would, the, priest, the high priest once a year would go through the curtain into the Ark of the Covenant room, the Holy of Holies, where God would be sitting in his glory on the mercy seat. Now I can tell you that uh, this week I'm supposed to be in California at camp. That's all been canceled. But I can tell you this pattern of worship I have actually led high school students through for years. It's called the Tabernacle Prayer. We begin by praising God confessing our sins before him, remembering his goodness to us, and then entering his intimate presence where his glory is. And as I lead kids through this prayer over and over again, the glory of the Lord always shows up in powerful ways. So Solomon erects this temple, he puts it up, and then it tells us in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1, look what happens. When Solomon had finished praying, to dedicate the temple, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple that Solomon had built. But remember, the writer of Hebrews says, this is still only a shadow of what's going to come. So, Pastor Greg, what comes next? Yeah, that amazing verse, the glory of God filling the temple, this is what we're after, right, friends? We want the glory of God to fill up and shine forth and manifest itself. But there is a danger in having God um, closely associated with a permanent structure or building. It's a spiritual danger that we might end up reducing God to a particular place or space. It's interesting that none of the temples that were built during biblical times are still standing. Right? It took decades and decades and decades for great King Herod to build up this temple. And Jesus himself uh, kind of called the shot that it wasn't going to last forever. And just a few decades later, the Roman Empire wiped it out. We may enter into a similar spiritual danger when we associate the glory of God 
only with a particular space or place that we can see or touch. Of course, there are places on this planet that are thick with meaning and significance because of the experiences that we've had with God. I mean, I could point you to places in Michigan where I grew up, places in California, some villages in Eastern Europe, some particular uh, outdoor places, some particular buildings and spaces that have so much significance to me because I experienced God there. But ultimately what it's about is the glory of God and the presence and the power of God that I experienced there and not the physical space. Hopefully you have, if you've been in our building before, experienced that same thing within the walls of ECRC. But it is not about the bricks and mortar here, the, I mean, the blue couch, the wall, the seats, Doug's guitar, the organ, the choir loft, that, has, that is not where it's at. Ultimately, it is God and God alone and experiencing and finding him in his glory that matters the most. We ought not to confuse the means with the master or the gifts with the one who gives it. We are after the giver of glory. Here's what really matters. After 1,500 years of tabernacle and temples in the life of God's people and all the deep habits and strong traditions and powerful preferences that God's people developed, Jesus arrives. In the Gospel of John, chapter 114, it says that Jesus made his dwelling among human beings. Literally, the verb is that he tabernacled among people like us. From the very beginning, Jesus was identified and identified himself as God's living temple. Now here in the flesh, we have a great theological word for this, that Jesus is God's living temple here in the flesh. The incarnation, the marriage between God's heavenly glory and our human experience. The incarnation, that means that the glory of God was manifest in Jesus' flesh and blood. Does this sound crazy? I mean, it it is an amazing miracle, but we're going to go even deeper. When a sign of his identity as the Son of God was demanded from Jesus, he said this, destroy this temple, pointing to Herod's great temple, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up. And he was not referring to that giant building, but his own body. And at the trial before his crucifixion, Jesus said these words, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with human hands. And when Jesus breathed his last and gave up his spirit, the Gospel of Matthew records that at that very moment, the curtain of the temple in Jerusalem was torn from top to bottom. The curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the world. The significance? No human hand could reach the top of that curtain. It was God himself tearing the curtain and allowing his glory and presence and power to no longer be contained, but to escape and run wild now to every corner of the globe. The glory of God is now on the loose and everywhere is potentially tinged and colored with the presence of God. He is the center of everything and everybody. We Christians do not have a building-oriented spirituality. We have a Jesus-oriented spirituality, and wherever his spirit is, we are right at the heart of God, and we are at the heart of what matters most. So where is Jesus right now? If he is the living temple, where is Jesus in the flesh right now? The Apostles' Creed tells us that he has ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. 
So somehow Jesus still in his divinity and in his humanity is right at the center of God's throne. That is totally true. But there is another answer to this question. Where is Jesus right now? There is another response. So where is the body of the Lord? Where is the body of Christ? Well, it's actually right here, right? It's a group of people that Jesus has formed. Um, It's a new temple, in quotation marks, where the spirit of God dwells. It's not a temple built out of cedar and stone. It's a temple built on the lives of the people that have been made alive in Christ. Look what Ephesians chapter 2 says about this new temple. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. I love this. It has nothing to do with a building. This is a group of people that God has planted himself within. And when that group of people comes together, the glory of the Lord resides there. The spirit of the Lord resides there. Jesus himself resides there. He said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I'm in the middle of them. I'm there with them. My glory is on display in that group of people called the church. The apostle Peter continues this image when he writes in 1 Peter 1 these words. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I love this, that Peter calls us living stones. So there was a practice back in the ancient world where people would put up like piles of rocks when when God would show up in a certain spot. They would put up like a little altar of rocks there and they would leave it there as a remembrance set of stones to remember this place where God had really done this special thing. Here's the problem with that pile of stones. If you weren't there to actually explain to somebody what happened there, those stones couldn't speak for themselves, right? They would just sit there as a pile. People would come upon them and say, well, something cool happened here. I don't know what it was. Well, now Jesus has created a group of living stones who have mouths to speak And we get to go around and talk to people about the glory of God in our lives. We get to put the glory of God on display through our lives. We are the church of Jesus. We get to go be the church. Now, do you ever, uh, have you ever experienced the, the glory of God through this new temple, this people of God, this dwelling place of the Holy Spirit? I have many times. I remember being uh, maybe about six months ago at the Cook County Juvenile Detention Center down in Chicago. There's a group of us that went on this day, and it was time for us to speak. And a couple of us preachers maybe got up and said some things. But the most powerful speaker that day was Karen Van Proyen, who got up as a mom, and through the power of the Holy Spirit in her that was living inside of her, she spoke to these boys in a way that just gripped their attention. And you can feel that the glory of God had descended on the Cook County Detentional Center that day because God's people, the living stones, had shown up. I remember being here right in this worship center. It was the first service. We were serving communion. The spiritual girls were here, the choir, and they started singing, I will rise, we will rise, as the communion elements went out. And all of a sudden, all of us felt it. I remember catching some of the elders' eyes The glory of the Lord had descended. Something had happened. The Spirit of God had shown up. And we'd experienced in these living stones, his church, the glory of God, his presence, his dwelling showing up that day. I remember being over at York Community Resource Center 
where the God time was going on and the teachers from this church had gone there, right? Had taken their light, their glory and moved it over there and they began to talk about this God that they loved and cared for and the students asking questions and fully engaged and one girl said, God time rocks. And I saw again the glory of God on display through this temple this building made of living stones who could give glory to God through our lives and through our testimony. I love this image in the book of Revelation where Jesus is writing these seven letters to the churches there and it talks about this lampstand of God that is present in each of these churches. The lampstand of God is the glory and presence of God among his people. I hope that we'll continue to experience that here at ECRC. I hope we'll continue to be that, spread that, Wherever we go, wherever you find yourself, I know right now we can't meet in this building, that doesn't make us any less the church. Wherever you find yourself, the glory of God is living in you. Put it on display. Show the world as a living stone who this God really is. And then, Greg, it gets even better, I think, right? It does. So God's glory was on display in the tabernacle, for sure, in the temple, especially in Jesus himself, now in his body, the church, and amazingly, God prefers for his glory to be displayed not only as his people gather together, but also in each of us individually as living stones. It's like we're tabernacles, once again, movable and portable, able to carry out uh, the presence and the power of God to every corner. Uh, a community that especially needed to hear this message were the Corinthians, who were kind of in the habit of mistreating their community and even mistreating themselves. So the Apostle Paul wrote to them these words, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? Do you not know that your bodies, your very bodies, are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Friends, we are meant to be walking, living tabernacles. We are the preferred spaces and places for the glory of God to dwell these days. You don't need a plane to get there. You don't need a train to get there. You don't need to make a long drive to a special destination. Just look around with eyes to see and ears to hear and look inside yourself. This is where the promised Holy Spirit dwells. If you want to meet with God, if you are desperate and hungry and thirsty to meet with, with God, like a building, a place like this can help a little bit. Familiar space can help. But ultimately, it is the communion that happens within your very soul that God is looking for. If you find yourself discontent, dissatisfied, hungry and thirsty, listen to the Spirit dwelling right within you. This season of wilderness living has potentially been a great gift for us to break us out of even some of our good patterns and routines and to get us to wake up and experience God in a diversity and variety of ways. The most common exhortation or command in the Bible is this. Do not be afraid. Now there is a lot going on in our midst right now that could potentially tempt us to fear these days. But God, through the spirit that tabernacles right within us, offers exactly the opposite of fear. The Holy Spirit living inside us offers us peace. This is the first and best gift of the Holy Spirit, friends. 
peace that passes understanding, showing up and living in your very soul. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Like, that is never promised to us, an absence of conflict. Peace, instead, is the fitting together of all the disparate and chaotic pieces of life's puzzle, and that the Spirit collects them and puts them back together in our very heart and soul. Spirit and peace go hand in hand. In the book of Romans, uh, this is put beautifully. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Can you imagine that? A life that is characterized by a spirit-governed mind that results in creativity and peace? This is the promise when we allow ourselves to be filled up with the glory of God and God himself to take up residence in our human tabernacle. Peace in your soul, peace in your bones, and the glory of God shining out of your eyes and your smile and the works of your hands. Friends, this is possible in the midst of viruses, in the midst of disease. This is possible in the midst of losses and postponements. This is possible in the midst of societal anger and righteous discontent and off-target raging alike for the peace of the Spirit to fill you up and for the glory of God to shine forth. It turns out that what ultimately matters is not what is going on outside of us, not where you are geographically, not our exterior circumstances. What matters most and what is possible is that we are always in the right place and have the right space to make a home for God. Will you pray with me? God, we need your glory to increasingly fill us and make a home in us. God, this morning, even as I put my hand on my heart, I want to say, God, I am increasingly open. I desire more of you. I need more of you than I would have even known three or four months ago. So in your people, in your church, fill us with your peace not to solve everything, not to instantly figure everything out, but so that we can walk through this life and carry your presence and to carry signs of hope and healing, to carry signs of your power and to let your glory shine through our faces and what we do. Oh God, only you can accomplish that. We do not have that in human effort, but we're open to what only you can do in Jesus' name. Amen.